Something I absolutely admire about my partner, River, is how well she knows her way around words. I've been learning a new word every day for over a decade. And in the time we've been together, I've stumped her only a handful of times. She grew up in a very literal and literate family. At the dinner table, her dad would challenge her and her siblings about how they used particular words. If he felt they used a word incorrectly, he would have them grab a dictionary and defend themselves. She's also consumed books like they were candy since she was very little and has written poetry for just as long. This is one of the aspects that made me so attracted to her. I was looking for someone who could keep me sharp, articulate, and well-spoken. Throw my oldest kid into the mix, who is also highly literal, and there's no escape now. If I don't articulate myself well, the reflection is crystal clear. I gotta give it another shot. I need to either clear up my expression or clarify my actual thought. Now, there's often a trap here, though, for those of us who have the tendency to fixate on words. What is it? Let's find out. The earliest Greek philosophers didn't really ask what is questions. Rather than quibble over the meaning of words, they tried to solve specific problems by creating bold, explanatory theories. And if critical discussion revealed that an explanation didn't hold up, then they would try to create a better one. Beginning with Socrates, however, this explanatory approach to knowledge started to fade into a descriptive one. After Socrates recognized that the Ionians' purely materialistic philosophies failed to address the human, he turned his gaze from the heavens to the soul to problems a bit closer to home, to things like motivations and intentions, justice, beauty, and goodness. Quite naturally, then, Socrates became more interested in what everything is in and of itself. What is justice? What is goodness? What is beauty? If, for example, someone claimed that people ought to be happy, he would ask, what is happiness? And then watch them stumble to describe it. Do we really know these things we speak so confidently about? We all know what things like happiness, heartbreak, and hope are like. But does anyone actually know what they are? Is happiness, say, made of some kind of substance? Some kind of essence? Does it have a shape? Does it exist apart from someone who is happy? What about cars? No two cars are really the same, but we all know what we mean when we say car. But is a car no longer a car if it loses its headlights? What about its doors? Its steering wheel? What if we got rid of every actual car? Would the concept of car still exist? If so, where would it exist? And what would its existence be like? This is the problem of universals. Socrates' solution to the problem was that we can never know what a universal like happiness really is 
we can still improve our understanding, that is, our definition or description of it, by criticizing our assumptions. We can improve our understanding of what things are by committing ourselves to reason. Socrates' student Plato agreed that definitions are key, but because Plato was convicted in Heraclitus's everlasting fire, he thought it was impossible to define anything. The moment you define it, it will have changed in the next moment. To square the problem of change with the problem of universals, then, Plato argued that universals exist in an eternal and immaterial realm of forms, a place where mathematics, numbers, ideas, and other concepts are frozen in perfect form, and material things that share some characteristic of these forms are imperfect, decaying copies of the immaterial form. Okay, kind of weird, but original and cool. So, did Plato believe we could ever come to truly know what these things are? Did he believe we could access this immaterial realm of forms? Well, yes and no. In Plato's earlier works, still under the influence of Socrates, he believed we could come to know things better through his famous theory of anamnesis, but not know with certainty. Plato's theory of epistemology, however, changed, took on different shape as he aged. But according to the young Plato, before birth, our souls were inextricably tied up at one with the entire immaterial realm of forms. The nature of all forms, he believed, are related. They live in a divine state, and so our soul is akin to all natures, omniscient and divine. It knows all things. But when we're born, we forget. At birth, we fall from heaven, we fall from grace, we fall from a divine state of knowledge. We become trapped in our decaying material bodies. As the result of anamnesis, though, we can once again make contact with truth. We can recover our memory and knowledge, though only partially, through a recollection process where a teacher questions a student in an attempt to provoke a memory of the object at hand. Plato's character, Socrates, demonstrates this in a passage of the Mino by helping an uneducated young slave to recall the proof of a special case of the theorem of Pythagoras. So, for the early Plato, all knowledge is recognition. It's recognition, recalling or remembering the essence or true nature. That we once knew. Aristotle, however, a student at Plato's Academy, didn't buy this. To him, Plato's immaterial realm doesn't solve the problem of universals. It duplicates it. Form, Aristotle believed, doesn't exist apart from particular things. To say that Billie Eilish and Beyonce are both women is not to say that over and above them there's a third thing woman, to which they are each related. Rather, womanhood is simply a characteristic they share. And we recognize the shared characteristic because we learn about womanhood through repetition. After examining many women, we eventually discover those similarities that lead us to the true description 
or essence of womanhood. For Aristotle, then, we aren't born with innate knowledge of universals, as Plato believed, but rather we discover the true essence of a thing through induction, the repetition of observation and experience, which he believed can somehow lead us from particular instances to universals. This, at first sight, seems like a much more grounded theory of knowledge than Plato's. But Aristotle's solution to the problem of universals fails for at least three reasons. First, he completely ignores Heraclitus's argument that it's impossible for anything to exist in a world of constant change, since the moment you define something, it will have changed in the next moment. The second reason Aristotle's solution fails is due to his belief that repetition can somehow create knowledge. Don't get me wrong, repetition or practice is central to the human learning process, no doubt. But repetition doesn't create anything new, which the growth of knowledge requires. Rather, repetition familiarizes and fine-tunes an existing solution, one that's already been created through trial and error. That is, it helps you form habits, which frees up your conscious attention to focus on new problems. The more practice we become at a task, the less attention we require to do it. Just think for a moment about when you first learned to tie your shoes. It required a lot of attention at first. But with practice, more and more you were able to accomplish this task subconsciously. How long has it been since you put thought into tying your shoes? The last, but not least, of Aristotle's mistake was his assumption that knowledge is passively imprinted on our minds through observation. This idea was picked up and developed by Francis Bacon during the Scientific Revolution and later defended by John Locke, who said the mind is like a blank slate which is filled by sensory experience. This blank slate or bucket theory of mind, also known as empiricism, was the mainstream view until finally, in the 20th century, the humble philosophical giant Karl Popper cleaned up the confusion. But unfortunately, still to this day, I find people falling into its trap, including many scientists. So let's try to get this straight. Despite what Aristotle, Bacon, and Locke believed, and despite what many still believe, it's impossible to read or infer knowledge from nature. After all, a blank slate can't do anything. In order to collect data from the world and do something with it, you first need a theory in place. One, to gather the data, and two, to do something with the data. A piece of paper, as you know, doesn't really do anything with light waves. To do something with that information, those ones and zeros, again, it would first need an idea, a theory, about how to capture the waves and turn them into some kind of representation of the world, like our visual system does. And still, this wouldn't be enough. Gathering data gets us nowhere. The paper would also have to have an aim, something to do with the data. It would need a why or a problem to solve. We don't just have visual systems for the hell of it. Our visual system was shaped and molded by the problem of survival and replication. 
by evolution. Just think, if you filled a notebook with every observation you made and then gave it to the Royal Society, they wouldn't know what to do with it. It would just end up in the trash. Another way to demonstrate this point, that you need theories in place to catch and use data, Hopper would ask his students on the first day of class simply to observe. And after a long, awkward silence, a brave student would finally muster up the courage to say, Um, Professor, what exactly do you want us to observe? Aha, Hopper would reply. Precisely the point. In order to observe, you must first have in mind a definite problem and hypothesis to guide your observation, to tell you what you seek and where to seek it. Charles Darwin also seemed to find this point obvious when he said, How odd it is that anyone should not see that all observation must be for or against some view. He said that in a letter to Henry Fawcett on September 18, 1861. There's no escape from it. Every observation is theory-laden. None of your sensory perceptions represent how the world actually is, at least in any complete sense. You don't, for example, experience the nerve signals traveling from your sensory receptors to your brain as electrochemical wave patterns, which again, are just concepts we use to point at or paint over some narrow region of reality. Nor do you experience these electrochemical signals as traveling through your neurons. No, instead, you believe they're out there in the world somewhere. But yellow, say, doesn't really exist out there. Rather, your brain creates the experience of yellow through a computational process of electrochemical signals. When you perceive yellow, you're really detecting a pattern of incoming electromagnetic waves that repeat themselves about 520 trillion times a second. And after they're captured by a molecule in your eye, the signal is then relayed through a number of biological systems. Again, theories. Before yellow finally arises in consciousness. As with all knowledge, your sensory experience of the world is but a web of guesses. An additional point to consider is the perception of different animals. As you know, animals perceive the world differently than us. Bats use sonar or echolocation to see and navigate the world, and they perceive this sound in a way similar to our visual perception. Vipers see in infrared. Some species of mantis shrimp see in 16 dimensions as opposed to our three dimensions. Which animal has the correct view of the world? None. We each see and know the world only from behind the veil, from the world of appearances. And because the world of appearances is creative, because it's only a model of the universe, each of us sees only a fraction of this infinite and undivided potential. We each have created, or have evolved, our own models of the impenetrable world behind appearances, the ultimate reality. Nets, if you will, that are cast over only small portions of the world. Well, so much for Aristotle's epistemology. 
But let's not stop here. We only have half of his theory. Though induction fails for the reasons we've explored, I think it's still worth our time to hear him out. Since the belief that something can be proved, demonstrated, justified, or verified as positively true still haunts the halls of humanity to this day. Okay, so what's the other half? Well, for Aristotle, induction merely gives the premises or concepts, which you can then use to deduce the ultimate secrets of the cosmos. The real power for Aristotle, then, lies in deduction. Deduction, Aristotle believed, is the key to demonstrably true knowledge, or epistemy. And hey, can you really blame him? After all, you can't deny its power. We rely heavily on it to bring order and meaning into an otherwise chaotic and meaningless world. When I tell you I love the warmth you bring into this world, it actually means something. But into warmth I you world this love the bring is just noise. Likewise, if we cut a pie into thirds and it gave us only two pieces, then we'd be in big trouble, no? Coding and software development, constructing bridges and buildings, and everything else that requires logical steps, algorithms, instructions, recipes, would all fall apart. My grandma's oatmeal cookie recipe would be doomed. Logic holds our concepts together. It puts them in relation to one another. Words and concepts, then, have no teeth without it. Concepts need to be put into a thought, idea, or explanation. Some relational scheme to mean anything. Logic or relational properties are necessary for us to paint stories, to pin characteristics to people, to build relationships, to potter expressions, and to choreograph dances. Our words, symbols, and concepts are empty without logical consistency, without some kind of logical framework. Okay, so we both agree to some extent with Aristotle that deduction is necessary for understanding. It's necessary for a world of order and meaning, rather than chaos and noise. The problem, though, which Aristotle himself recognized, is that if the key to demonstrably true knowledge is deduction, then our premises or concepts must also be demonstrated. And if our premises are demonstrated, then they too must have been deduced, deduced from something, which in turn must have been deduced from something else, and so on, ad infinitum. Well, shit, Aristotle thought. How can I get around this infinite regress? First, he figured that because words get their definition by convention, they must be true by convention. But this would mean that knowledge is true only by convention, which he didn't like. He's after demonstrably true knowledge. So it was here then that he turned to induction in hopes of securing conceptual knowledge. Aristotle's epistemology then relies on both induction and deduction. Once we've acquired the true essence of a thing through induction, through the repetition of observation and experience, we'll have an infallible definition of it. 
And once we've built a big enough dictionary in this way, we should then be able to use our definitions to deduce the ultimate explanation of reality, one that is eternally infallible. That's some big talk for a goofy little mammal who burps his own worm. Homie was right on his first go-around. Words are created by convention. They're just noises we make. How, then, can they tell us the true essence of anything? They obviously can't. Knowledge is, and always will be, but a web of guesses. A collection of concepts or divisions that we paint over the undivided and seamless whole, over the ever-changing flow of experience, which we put in relation to one another in order to solve our problems and aims, in order to navigate our life and our relationships. There is no certainty, no finality, no ultimate truth, other than the truth of the moment's direct experience. There's only the world and our conjectures about it, only our creations, our guesses, our mistakes. But if we're willing to learn from them, willing to carve out our mistakes through the cyclical process of trial and error, with deduction as an indispensable tool, a tool to weed out the illogical consequences of our creations, then we can move ever so humbly towards truth. As Socrates said, the only true wisdom is knowing you know nothing. <laughs>